So uh, in the summer of 2018, uh, Laura and William and Chloe and I were in downtown Vancouver, um, the beautiful, incredible city of downtown Vancouver. We were working with a particularly amazing church which ministers the good news of Jesus in that really secular, postmodern context, to particularly to young people. And uh, I was there to, to help them think about how you can reach out with the good news of Jesus in a new context. Um, I was also in Vancouver with Laura because we were getting ready to come down to LA for our first uh, ever recce trip to vintage and I was due to be in LA as well, speaking about what it means to, to share the love of Jesus, to reach out with the love of Jesus. And uh, I was, was given the task of coming up with a passage to preach on for both those occasions. And so I locked myself in the basement in the library of Regent College Vancouver, if any of you have ever been up there. It's an incredible campus, University of British Columbia. And for two days, I prayed and I read and I sat in front of the Lord and said, God, what can I possibly offer to people in Vancouver and to people in LA to talk about Jesus' love and how we can share it with one another? And I just kept coming back over and over and over again to one particular passage, which just so happens to be the passage that we have for today. It's the next bit of the Luke's Gospel passage. And, and I love this passage. I love it so much because it challenges us. It inspires us. It gets us to think about what it means to be a church that looks outwards. And you know, as we, we start a new year together, the thing that I am just is on my heart more and more and more it's what it's going to look like for us to be a church that not only just has a wonderful, intimate encounters with the Holy Spirit in prayer and worship, that not only looks to one another and chooses to love each other and care for each other and just prefer one another, even despite of our differences, but also actually what it looks like to be a church that looks outwards, to look out to a world that is broken, is lost, is hurting, where there is so much need. And I just really believe that that is what God is wanting to stir in us at the start of this new year, a church beyond the four walls that we have, a church that makes a difference in our world. And uh, last week, if you were here, you would have heard this prophetic word from Victor, who's on our prayer team. And I just wanted to, to frame the conversation today because he didn't know what we were going to be talking about, but this is what he shared. I thought it so speaks to this. This, uh, he said, is a season where the Lord is grafting into the church peoples and groups that are not normally seen in a church. There's a merging of different parts of society from the marketplace, from cultures and walks of life. There's a merging of generations, the churched with the unchurched. This is a season of stretching and coming together that only the Lord can do. Isn't that amazing? I love that. And so we're going to read together uh, Luke chapter 5, uh, 17 to 36. And I think Brandon is going to come uh, and read it. Brandon is also a new member of our board, so uh, he's going to read for us. So if you've got your Bibles in front of you, Luke 5, 17 to 36. Okay. One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, 
Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been laying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Thanks, ma'am. Thanks, Charlotte, for helping as well. You were amazing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is as relevant today as it always was and always will be. And Holy Spirit, open up our hearts today to hear specifically from you, specifically what you want to say to each one of us as we sit and as we listen today. Amen. So if you know anything of the context of this part of uh, Luke's gospel, you know that Jesus has been traveling throughout a local region, the region of Galilee. He's been preaching. He's been proclaiming the kingdom. He's called his first disciples together. And his reputation has grown amazingly. His reputation as a healer, as a rabbi, as a prophet. And he's called these first disciples together. And at the beginning um, of this passage today, and I'm going to draw some parallels to the Mark's gospel account of this passage too, Jesus comes to take a breath. He takes a rest. We find him in the town of Capernaum, which may have been his hometown, or it may have been the town where his family and his friends live. And he's in this one and two room house. We, we don't know if it was his house or if it was a friend's house or a family member's house. It may have even been that Jesus was just taking a day off after a busy season of ministry. But as Jesus enters in this town and he is in this house, people realize he's there. His friends, his family, his disciples, people who are the religious leaders of the community, people even from further afield gather that Jesus is there and they, they start to come. They arrive. They don't even wait for an invitation, but they just pile themselves into the house, one after the other, until the house is completely full. There is no space anywhere in the house. You can't get in. You can't get out. And Jesus, in his grace, in his kindness, in his love, starts to teach them, teach them about the kingdom of God. But as he is there in the house teaching this group of people, further afield, there's another guy, a guy who is paralyzed, who cannot walk. We don't know if he was born that way, don't know if it was an accident, if it was an illness. But what we do know is that to be paralyzed in that culture meant basically being forced to beg, to sit on the side of the street because there was no healthcare system, there was no disability allowance, there was nothing to support this guy except the love of the other people around him. And so he would have been at the complete mercy of other people to support him and love him and care for him. But fortunately for this, this guy, he has four really good things going for him. And the four really good things that he has going for him are his four friends. Four friends who have heard about Jesus. Jesus the healer. Jesus who can physically change people's lives. And so they grab their friend. They put him on a mat and they pick him up, which is really hard, by the way, if you've ever tried it. And they walk across the town with this guy on a mat, which is really hard, by the way, if you've ever tried it. And they get to the house, and the house is completely full, and there's no way into the house. And so they think, well, what can we do? We'll climb up the stairs with this guy on a mat, which is really hard, by the way. 
and then they walk out across the flat roof and they part the matting on top of the roof, which is pretty ballsy and pretty hard, by the way, and then they lower him down on four ropes down in front of where Jesus is teaching, which is pretty hard, by the way. But as they lower him down, despite the commotion and probably like the surprise, there would have also been quite a lot of agreement in that room about what needs to happen next. Jesus is a healer. The man can't walk. Everyone would have gone, right, okay, well, let's see what Jesus is going to do to heal this man. But then really surprisingly, in verse 20, Jesus does something really confusing. He, he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. And for the, the religious leaders, for the Pharisees in the room, it would have been like, what are you doing? It's completely clear that only one person has the authority to forgive sins in the whole universe. Only one. And that is God. So for anybody to claim to forgive sins is absolute blasphemy. It's an absolute sin. It's absolutely terrible unless it's God themselves. And for everyone else in the room, the man himself, it's like disappointment, surely. Oh, I didn't come for a lecture. I didn't come for a sermon. I came to walk. Can you heal me or, or can you not heal me? And the question is like, well, Jesus, like, what are you doing? Why, why are you saying this? What is going on? Well, the answer to what Jesus is doing is actually to reveal the bigger story. Because for every person in that room, the paralyzed man, everyone else, for every person in this room today, for every person in any room today, and anywhere in the world today, for actually whatever we think that the biggest need we have is, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's financial, whatever it might be, that there is always a bigger need. Every human being has the same massive eternal need, and the biggest need that you and I face, which is even bigger than the ability to be able to walk, is for our sins to be forgiven. Now, when you hear that word sin, I don't know where you move in your chair. <laughs> whether you recoil slightly, whether you squirm, because that word is so hated nowadays, isn't it? Like to, to even use that word kind of implies like judgment on someone else, right? You are a sinner. You are a sinful person. You are living in sin. Oh, that's cool. We've got a, theme, a soundtrack to go with our sermon this morning. But... In a context which is so largely postmodern that we live in, if you were to say to somebody else, you have a problem and it's sin, it's so judgmental, isn't it? It seems so damning of somebody else. But yet, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that ultimately when you and I were made, we were made primarily for a relationship with God. We were made to be on the same side, to be under the protection and the care and the love of the creator of the universe, who can provide things for us, who can do things with us, who can build a story around us of eternal life. But that, that story, that relationship is broken. It's broken by this thing called sin, by the evil, by the things that go on in the world, by the things and the choices we make, by the things that we say or do. It's broken, which means that we cannot be in that relationship with God. And if you aren't in that relationship with God, then actually every other need you have is, is got a problem attached to it. Whether you can walk, whether you have money, whether you have great emotions and great relationships, those things are really great. But if you do not have a relationship with God, then actually everything else has a brokenness to it. Everything else has a temporariness to it. Because one day you will have to stand in front of the creator of the universe and account for your life. And if you haven't got the forgiveness of sins, if you don't have the assurance of eternal life, then actually that's a really big problem. 
what Jesus is pointing to in this guy's life is that before you have a need to walk, you have a need for forgiveness. And it's true for us, whether we know it, whether we see it. It's true for everybody outside of this church this morning. It's true for everybody in the world today that the biggest need we have, as unpopular as it is to say, is to have our sins forgiven. And we can forget that, right? I mean, we live in a culture which wants to deny that. We live in a place which wants to say that Jesus was just a nice dude. He was just a nice man. He could do some good things. And yet the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he came to take away your sins by dying on a cross, by rising again, so that we might have a relationship with the creator of the universe again and know his healing and his forgiveness and his eternal life. And that's a really good thing. Amen? It's a really good thing. So the first thing is that if we're going to talk about mission, we need to understand what the biggest need is that people always have. But as we stand on that truth, we stand on the reality of the biggest need that any human beings, we don't have to just stop there because we can actually then start to move further and further outwards with the love of God and the purposes of God. In our um, Anglican network of churches, and you met our bishop last week on the video screen, uh, we talk about these five ways that God often wants to work in mission in the world. Uh, they'll come up on the screen, but they are to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, to teach, to baptize, and nurture new believers, to respond to human need by loving service, to transform unjust structures of society, to challenge violence of every kind, to pursue peace and reconciliation, and to strive to safeguard the integrity of creation and sustain and renew the life of the earth. Now, I'll let you into a secret. Some people get really cross with me when I read those out. And they get cross because, and I think generally people get a bit cross, because sometimes when we read those five things out together, what it sounds like is we mean that they're all equally true and of equal value. Actually, I don't believe that they are of equal value because I believe that unless you get the first two, which is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, to baptize and nurture new believers, actually you don't really have anything for the others at all. But do you notice what Jesus did? Is that after he'd forgiven his sins, he didn't stop there. What did he do? He said to the man, get up and walk. You are healed. And I think the same is absolutely true for us is that we don't need to be fearful of the things that involve changing people's lives outside of, the, outside of our doors in the places of brokenness, in the places of care that we need to go as long as one thing is true. We do not move from the central reality that the biggest need that any human being ever has is the good news of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? And because we do that, we can seek God's kingdom to come. We pray, God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven right here and right now. So mission means knowing people's biggest needs. The second is that mission always means coming from a place, flowing out of a place, living out of a place of love. I don't know what it is about Jesus that captivated your heart. If you call yourself a Christian here this morning, I don't know what it was about Jesus that, that stirred you to love him. One of the things that stirred me and continues to stir me to love Jesus is that he is so loving toward me. He's so kind. He's so good. He's so compassionate. I mean, like in this story today, here he is taking a day off after a long period of ministry. And I know what that feels like. It's like sacred time. And then in walk all these people crowding in on him, coming in through the roof, wrecking his roof. There's not a hint of annoyance and anger. There's just love and graciousness and compassion, compassion to heal, to forgive. 
And I think we see the same mirrored in these life of these friends. I wonder at what point, if, if my friends needed healing, at what point would I go, that's just too much? Pick you up on a mat? Probably too much. Walk you across a town? Definitely too much. Walk you up some stairs up the side of a building? Definitely too much if the building was full. Make a hole in the roof to lower you down? Definitely too much. But we see is this incredible story of love. That mission has to always flow from a place of compassion and gentleness and kindness and love. I love last week when Bishop Todd brought us that, that picture of the leper, how Jesus reached out and he touched the most unclean man in society. We could talk about the woman at the well, we could talk about the woman caught in adultery, that mission comes out of that place of love and it goes out to care for those who are hurting. And I wonder when you think about your friends, you know, your, those who don't know Jesus, those who are hurting and broken, lost, then maybe they don't know it. I wonder, are you and am I motivated by that same love that Jesus had? When we think of our friends, is it, is it our compassion for salvation and healing which is driving us? Or if we're honest, is it some sort of judgment that they're not living right, that they're living in sin, that they need to sort themselves out? When we drive down the street, and we encounter someone who's experiencing homelessness by the side of the street, is it love and compassion that causes us to reach out to see their lives transformed? Or is it judgment that they probably made a bad lifestyle choice or they're probably addicted or they're probably on a crime story or something like that? When we deal with people who live in lifestyles that we don't agree with, is it our judgment that calls them out or is it our love and compassion that woos them into the better story of human flourishing? Is it love that motivates our story? I was listening to an um, interview with a guy called Chris Vallotton. Some of you know him very well. He's a, one of the senior leaders at Bethel Church recently. And he was being asked, like, well, how, do you, how do you read 2020 and 2021? And he said, I actually have a lot of sadness in my heart about the, the lack of love that we've seen within Christian churches, between Christians, between, out in the world as well. And he said, my, my ultimate problem is not even a theological one. He said, my problem is that I think that if we're ever going to see transformation and we want to persuade people to change their minds about things, if we want people to see the world like Jesus does, like, the, like each other do, if we, want to see, if we want that to happen, then actually complaining about people, shouting about people, condemning them and judging them and withdrawing from them into our own spaces and getting angry and fearful of each other, it basically just doesn't work. It doesn't matter what you think about theology, it's just not a very good strategy for changing people's minds. If you've ever tried it, it doesn't, it doesn't work, really. It doesn't. Andy Crouch, he's a famous pastor of a big church in Atlanta, Georgia. He says, when Christians come into a place, often they're tempted by these four ways of engaging. The first is that we condemn the world around us. The second is that we criticize it. The third is that we consume it. Or the fourth is that we just join in and copy it. And actually, he says, we need a bigger story. We need a better story. Because what Jesus comes to do is to transform culture, to transform cities, to transform the world, and he does it through his gospel. But it starts always in a place of love. And you know what? I just think about my friends, and I think about those that I know, and I know, actually, before I will ever have a chance to speak to them about God's love, they actually have to know that I love them. That if they don't think that I love them, no amount of authority or truth is actually going to win them over. It's just not going to work. 
And we've seen that out in the world around us. It doesn't matter if you're a prominent scientist, it doesn't matter if you're a world leader. Right now, if people don't think you're on their side, if they don't think that you've got their best interests in hearts, it's not going to be enough. Love has to be a motivator in our story. So mission means knowing people's needs. Mission means loving people as Jesus loved them. But mission also means going beyond our four walls. I, um, I've had these slides on my computer for a while, and you'll see in a minute why I've had them from my computer for a while, because they're so beautiful and 1990s made. But um, if you go back to the 1960s, look at that. That's amazing. Um, it's interesting, there's a little man supposed to be in the middle there, but he's turned into a black box on my screen. I don't know, on that screen, I don't know why. Um, if you go back to the 1960s, you know, sociologists, church historians will tell you that in most of the US in the 1960s, Christianity was very much part of the culture of, of, of who we were. If you were to ask someone, you would find that Christianity was, was popular. People were largely inquisitive about it. It was very respected. Christianity was seen as relevant. It was seen as true. And, and Jesus was a central figure in the world that, that we lived in. And so if you wanted to ask the question, how does someone become a Christian? And this is a sweeping generalization, but I think it broadly holds up, is that really what a lot of people needed was that they needed to take that thing that they knew was instinctively true and real out there and have that personal conviction of, of sin and relationship with Jesus and filling of the Holy Spirit so that they would have that story for themselves. And so, you know, people like Billy Graham and the Four Spiritual Laws and revival meetings and street missions and beach missions were just brilliant tools to help people cross over a line. Now, if you, you fast forward to the 2000s, the millennium, Y2K, man, if you remember that, the millennium bug, is that what it was called? Something like that. Anyway, times had changed massively by that point. Now, I think in a lot of the US, and same in the UK, Christianity remained popular. People continued to be inquisitive about it. If you were a pastor, if you were a leader of a church, the church itself continued as an institution to have a lot of respect. But maybe there was an increasing sense in a lot of places that actually Christianity is just a bit boring. Church is a bit boring. Is church relevant to my changing life with technology and communication? People started to express much more major doubts about what was going on. And the question, of course, came, well, is Jesus God? And if Jesus is God, why isn't Muhammad God or Buddha God? Or why isn't New Ageism a source of a way to God? And so it was no longer, a, it was no longer enough to say to people, you just need to cross over from death to life with the personal conviction of sins. People needed to discover whether it was real and true. And so we had brilliant Bible studies. We had books like The Case for Christ. We had seeker-sensitive services which proved to people or tried, really, tried to prove to people that we were cool and that we knew what we were, we were doing and we were relevant to their lives. And I think it worked in a lot of ways. But of course, now, 20 years past this point, we live in a whole new space. We live in a space that we, we don't even know what it's going to look like yet because the pandemic has accelerated it even faster, that it's still unfolding in front of us. But what we absolutely do know is that this new reality that we have is, is totally different. And it's different because truth is not absolute for a lot of people. Truth is experiential. The church is not seen as a respected place. It's largely disrespected in a lot of uh, groups in society. People have 
in many instances rejected organized religion and Christianity. People are certainly more likely if they've got an immediate need and they don't know about Jesus to look out to Google and to social media and places like that for truth than they are to go and phone me up. Truth maybe and Christianity maybe is seen as irrelevant. It's more about self-discovery and all of those kind of things. Now that can that can freak us out. I mean that could be enough like, oh gosh, okay, let's go home. Except for this rip truth. Either the good news of Jesus Christ was always absolutely true, or it wasn't. Either what was true in the 1960s in the millennium and 100 years ago and 500 years ago and 2,000 years ago was absolutely true and universally needed by every human being on the earth, or it was complete rubbish. Those are the only two things. Either people outside are desperately lonely and in need of love and care and compassion and healing like they were 50 years ago and 100 years ago and 200 years ago and 2,000 years ago, or they're not. And I put it to you that the gospel was true as in the past, and it's true now, and it will always be true. And I put it to you that people need love in the past, they need love now, and they will always need love in the future. Which means that what we need to change is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. We may just need to change the way that we think about how we communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world that we live in. Right? Yeah. So how do we do that? Well, I want to suggest that the thing that has been... God has been speaking to me about more and more and more and more is about being a church that lives outside of the four walls that we often create to hide with inside. That often as a church, what we do is we stand inside and we say, if you want to know what's true and real, come in here. And the problem is that people stopped coming in here quite a long time ago because they have other things to do on Sunday mornings. And so that means that we can no longer stay here and wait and get angry when they don't come. We actually have to be people who get up and get out and start to communicate the good news of Jesus outside. Right, And I want to show you a little video because this, uh, uh, this has been an astonishing week where I just felt like God rammed this home to Laura and I in a way that we didn't expect. So just, just watch this little video, which you may have seen on the weekly news already. So towards the end of the service on Sunday, I was trying to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I just got a sudden sense that I, I needed to share a prophetic word for the church. And it, it went like this. I just sensed as we were praying that actually God is releasing something new, that there is something important about what God is doing in our community, that God is getting us ready for this next phase of what he wants to do. And I just felt maybe for a few of us, maybe for all of us, that what God wanted to say was be ready. Be ready this week for what God wants to do with you, that there will be an opportunity, that there'll be a moment of meeting with someone this week or where you'll bump into someone on a street or just an opportunity to share of God's love with someone this week. So I don't know when that'll be. I don't know what that will look like for you. I just felt like the Lord wanted to say, just be ready. Be ready for what I want to do through you and in you this week. And I didn't know if it was for for me or for us or for the whole church, um, but I wanted to be faithful. And so nervously, I, I shared it. Um, and I didn't think too much about it until on Tuesday morning, we got up and had one of those hectic moments that people have from time to time. We had to get the kids off to school one way, we had this old classic car, which had to get to a, like a specialist shop 20 miles up the road so that it could get a tune up and get ready for smog. And so we kind of had it, like, I realized, oh gosh, the car's not got its insurance sorted yet. So I was on the phone to the insurance. You were trying to get the kids breakfasted and out the door. So I said, like, well, you, you take the kids to school. I'll head up to the shop and then you can meet me up at the shop and then we'll go on to the church office from there. Um, and so I eventually kind of got the insurance sorted. You'd already left with the kids for school. You're probably like halfway up the freeway by that point. I got out onto the main road in this old car, which I thought everything was ready to drive and got 20 yards down the street and it literally just like 
died in the street and just coasted to a halt in like a like a side street down and i was like oh my goodness like already late grumpy so i phoned up laura and was like just get off the freeway i'm not going to make it to the shop turn around i'll meet you at the church office a little bit um later and i you know we don't often have like grumpy words but there was just a little few words exchanged and then i like hung up and and was like what is what's going wrong with this car um and for me, I was about 10, 15 miles up the freeway, almost to my destination. Slightly irritated that I then had to, you know, turn around and all those things, but I thought, that's fine. You know, we'll just do our thing, listen to some worship. Um, so I came off the freeway and then I was just on my way back around. There was one junction, I missed that junction, so I had to go on the next one. Um, so as I was coming back to join the freeway, I was at a stop sign waiting to go and I saw a guy just a bit further down um, clearly experiencing homelessness and kind of just wanting some food and things so I thought oh okay let's see what I've got in the car and in V Kids recently we just made up some packs like this so it's got everything like that would be really a bless blessing to these kind of people but I was not in my car I was in Beng's car so I didn't have it on me so I just rummaged through my bag I found a couple of granola bars and some chips and things and so I just wound on the window and kind of offered it to this guy um, and as he came a bit closer, I thought, I really recognise him. But obviously, like, 12 miles away, I don't know anyone there. So um, he came over, was really grateful, and we got chatting, and he said, oh, what's your name? So I said, I'm Laura. And he said, oh, from Alpha. And then it twigged that this, it was our friend Ray, who we'd been doing Alpha in the park with um, those that were living under the bridge. Um, so it was just an amazing connection just to be able to see him again. We haven't seen him for absolutely ages and kind of lost contact. But to be able to just use the small things I had in my car to bless him and to encourage him. And um, yeah, it was a crazy story. And then after I'd done that and kind of praying for him on the way down, I, I joined the freeway again. And then in front of me was a huge truck with Jesus is Lord plastered all over the side, back, everywhere. And I just was just amazed that... God can use me even when we're in this kind of annoying situation where I'm not supposed to be where I'm supposed to be, but God can still use it to bless other people. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? So I don't know, I don't know if anyone else had a story like that this week, but I mean, it'd be really convenient to tell you that we picked up Ray and, you know, cleaned him up and he's now, you know, sober and, you know, living with us or whatever. You know, we went back to try and find him later and we actually couldn't find him again later in the day. But what just just came to to my heart so this this is the call of the church you know this guy we'd lost touch with him completely we'd been praying for him ali and myself and matt and the others who ran alpha with him we saw his life really change through alpha it was amazing but he's still on a story he's still on a journey and and we didn't know if he was alive or dead and laura found him 15 miles away on the side of the freeway but this is the call i believe this is the kind of call of the church and it starts by being prepared to go out of love, even when we are in a mess and even when we're fearful and when we're angry and annoyed and shouting at our spouses or whatever we are, like God has moments for us. He has stuff for us to do if we're prepared to engage with him outside of the walls of the church. And, and I just want to finish with this little thing from a guy called Maslow. I don't know anyone studied Maslow's hierarchy of needs before. It's the, yeah, you're all nodding because you're like, yeah, I studied that. And it's like, you know, psych 101, like... This is, if you ever went to business school or anything, this is what you study. But this, is, this came to my mind this week because if, if, you haven't, if you don't know about this, basically Maslow says that there are five levels of need that human beings have. 
Unless you engage and deal with the most basic one, you, people are not prepared to engage or know or discuss the next one and not motivated by the next one and the next one. And it basically says that the, the first one, the one at the bottom, the red one, is the physiological needs that human beings have. They have a need for air and food and shelter and clothing and warmth. The next level up is, is that once people have got those things squared away, then they want to engage with safety needs. Am I secure? Am I safe? Am I financially going to be okay? Only then do we get to like level three, which is about love and belongingness, where relationships, where forgiveness, where connectedness to other human beings or a higher power might come in. Then we get to number four, which is self-actualization, which is about fulfilling your potential, about experiences and achievement. Uh, sorry, it's about um, respect for oneself and respect for others. And then you get to self-actualization, which is a fulfilling potential. Now. I put that up there because it's really interesting to me that the gospel, as we talk about the gospel, often comes in at level three there. We say to people, hey, would you come and know love? Would you know belongingness? Would you know forgiveness and connectedness and be in relationship with each other and God? But actually what we sometimes forget is that actually, particularly in our society right now, people are not operating at level three right now. They're operating at level two and level one. The people are fearful, that they're, they're scared, that they don't know if they're safe, they don't know if they're going to make it through the week because their loved ones are catching COVID or crazy stuff is going on out in the world. And it just challenged me again and struck me. Like, are we a church that is prepared to do what Jesus did? Is to get our hands a bit dirty, to do things outside of our doors, to be interrupted by the Holy Spirit, to actually offer love and care and compassion to people, maybe who look like it, like our friend Ray on the side of the freeway, or who don't look like it at all, who are extremely wealthy, but extremely anxious and lost and broken and addicted or whatever it might be. Are we prepared to be those kinds of people? And I close with this that Bishop Todd brought. It was so good last week, I almost missed it, but I wrote it down. He says, church, we cannot be the agents of God's healing, of his justice, of his peace, helping people to be reconciled to God unless we too are willing and able to be proximate to human brokenness. We cannot be the agents of God's healing, justice, peace, helping people to be reconciled to God unless we too are willing and able to be proximate to human brokenness. Shall we stand and let's pray.